Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CNS Journal Club podcast for January 2021. My name is Tiffany Hodges from University Hospitals, Case Western Reserve, University of Cleveland, Ohio, and I'll be serving as the moderator today for this discussion. Today, we are excited to highlight an article from Neurosurgery Journal entitled Clinical Outcome of a Sleep Deep Brain Stimulation for Parkinson's Disease Using Robot-Assisted Delivery and Anatomic Targeting of the Subthalamic Nucleus, a Series of 152 Patients. I am happy to welcome the lead author of the manuscript, Dr. Catherine Moran of the Department of Neurosurgery Beaumont Hospital in Dublin, Ireland. Dr. Moran, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tiffany. I'd also like to welcome our guest faculty today. We have Dr. Paul Larson, who is a professor and vice chair of neurological surgery at the University of California, San Francisco, and chief of neurosurgery at the San Francisco VA. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Larson. Thank you, glad to be here. Fantastic. I would also like to welcome Dr. Erica Peterson, functional neurosurgeon director of the section of functional and restorative neurosurgery at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Welcome Dr. Peterson to the podcast. It's great to be here, thank you so much. Great. And we also have our CNS resident fellow, Dr. Megan Still, who is from the University of Florida, who will be discussing the paper and asking questions. Before we start the discussion, I would like to remind our listeners that if you would like to purchase the CME version of the podcast, please visit the educational catalog at cns.org. So first, Dr. Moran, would you mind giving a brief summary of the manuscript and your inspiration behind the paper? Sure. Um, well, I am recently appointed to the National Center for Neurosurgery in Dublin, Ireland. And I wrote this paper and did this work while I was working with Professor Steve Gill in uh, Bristol NHS Trust in the UK. And um, when I was working with him in 2017. So uh, specifically, the paper is a uh, retrospective cohort singles uh, study center and um, looking at 152 patients with clinical outcome uh, following bilateral STN implantation for Parkinson's disease. Um, these implantations took place, as I said, in a single center with two surgeons from the years uh, from year 2012 up to about uh, end of 2015, 2016. Um, we examined one year postdoc clinical results following uh, deep brain stimulation, and we looked at uh, results including the UPDRS score, uh, PDQ39 score, um, Tinelli gait mobility, neuropsychological outcomes, um, including the Maddox Dementia rate Rating Scale and uh, Beck Depression Inventory and Anxiety Indices. Um, the cohort, as I said, as we said, they were asleep um, without microelectrode recordings using um, the Neuromave robot for uh, delivery. Um, also, in this study, there is a specific cohort of patients who underwent the surgery prone uh, with a parietal approach, um, 59 patients, and then 93 patients underwent the uh, frontal approach. And as I said, it was, uh, they were all done using the robot with intraoperative um, verification. Um, yeah, and there's um, some of the uh, tooling that I've described in the paper is specific to 
uh, is in-house manufactured for Bristol's, uh, some of the drills. Um, and um, in terms of accuracy data, it's not included in this paper, it's a different paper published uh, in operative neurosurgery um, with accuracy uh, 3D vector error of 0.78 millimeters and mean radial error of 0.6. Thank you so much. I'd like to ask now if Dr. Still has any questions for the author and open up the floor for discussion. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Uh, well, thank you. And I'd like to say thanks again to all of our guest faculty for taking the time to be here today. Um, I'm gonna open up the discussion with just a kind of a general question and see if we can spark some debate between all of our colleagues here. Um, as I know, we have uh, a few different people who approach DBS implantation in, in different manners. Um, so Dr. Moran, uh, in general, what do you see as the main strength of this approach over the current um, potentially more popular methods of DBS placement? Um, like what would you use to argue to other functional neurosurgeons as a reason to potentially adopt this method at their institutions? Well, I guess this method that I describe is an iteration of uh, Steve Gill's career in, in implanting electrodes, really. So he uh, has, um, since uh, the late 90s, 2000, implanted uh, using anatomical targeting in an asleep patient. So there was, it wasn't a center that changed from an awake traditional method to, uh, to an asleep method. The robotics has changed, but the targeting in terms of anatomical targeting uh, has been used for there for 20 years. Um, and in terms of your question for why would people adopt it? Um, it re I guess it comes down to um, history in a center, which is why, uh, why the center is, and the other surgeons who've joined Professor Gill are using it now. Um, and also um, it comes down to, um, a lot of it is to do with workflow and timing um, and the workflow, uh, again, through iterations is, is um, quite um, fast and um, it is a accurate and timely method of electrode insertion. But again, it's, it's with the history going before it of using anatomical targeting um, through the years. I, I'd like to just comment that I think that it's a great way of showing the correlate between anatomical targeting and functional outcome. There's been a lot of discussion about the comfort of doing a sleep DVS and using an image verified technique, but then how does that actually go to outcomes? And we've seen that come from several really good skilled centers. And then it becomes important to appreciate exactly what you just said, which is that each center with an expert surgeon has fat, can have very good outcomes. But then the question I think would be, how do you translate that to maybe a less experienced center where they want to be sure that they get good accuracy using a, a, a variation of this technique in order to get the same clinical outcomes? So the fact that you've been able to demonstrate the 12 month clinical outcomes are consistent with the, with the sleep approach, uh, I think helps to reassure that. But there are any other tips that you would give to a center that wants to adopt this in order to, to try to make sure that the accuracy and the clinical outcomes go together so that they feel comfortable going from awake verification to asleep? Well, I guess one idea is to 
not do it all at once and to use anatomical targeting with a more traditional frame and possibly to um, you know, verify it with microelectrode recordings down your single tract to make sure you're, uh, you're happy. Um, and then possibly if you want to move from that stage to the um, targeting using the robot. Um, but I think most centers are kind of, um, you know, the, the planning software is getting more sophisticated. It's, there's a lot more anatomical targeting. There's different forms of registration. But I think uh, adopting it is, um, is, can be challenging, um, but using, but changing one piece at a time possibly. Um, and also obviously uh, retros looking at your results is, uh, is a way to go. Yeah, one of the um, one of the aspects of the, of this technique for a sleep DBS is that it does use a robot, and uh, you know there there are many centers in the U.S. that are now doing a sleep DBS, but they're doing it with uh, you know either a, or, you know a standard stereotactic frame in CT, or they're using the ClearPoint system, which is disposables. You know the robot has it's a fairly significant capital purchase for a hospital that would sure. want to do it this way. Uh, do you think that uh, that is going to be a, a barrier to adoption at, at some centers, or do you think the the cost of a robot um, justifies, uh, you know, this technique? Um, I think so. Well, I guess it, you know, it depends on the way a hospital is funded, uh, which is slightly different in the U.S. than it is in in the U.K. or Ireland. Um, Part of it is to do with how many people can use the robot, how many of your surgical colleagues, you know, will use it for SEG, for epilepsy, for example. Um, we in Beaumont have recently acquired a ROSA robot um, that the epilepsy surgeons have started to use. Um, but I think, um, given an example of, of the workflow, just a typical day in the operating theater um, in using uh, the the uh, robotic asleep technique, we would generally in a 12 hour operating session do one or two battery changes and two full primary DBS insertions with the IPG electrode insertion as well. So that's, that's one in terms of efficiency and also in terms of uh, where I work in Dublin and um, theater time is um, one of the you know most um, precious resources and if to get a to get as many you know cases as you can get done or in the most efficient manner um, is important and um, so that's why our um center in dublin is looking to to use this one of the reasons so um with this, this technique you described here, did you see any change in the complication rate or the rate of non-responders after surgery as compared to the way you, the, you did it before? I understand the, the previous method you were using was also a- sleep. Previous method was also so, with a frame. So kind of this is, this is the same targeting. And um, no, we didn't see any uh, particular changes in the complications for this. Uh, there was two, uh, parenchymal hemorrhages that were superficial, those patients went on to be, to have their programming done normally. Um, and there was three infections from 159, um, which is um, 
exceptionally. Um, I had a question. Um, so, uh, you know, yeah, three infections in 159, that's a very typical infection rate. Uh, I, I had a, a very practical question, which is, uh, I noticed that the workflow, there's sort of an initial prep and drape uh, yeah. to get the sort of guide tube and stylet in place. And then you sort of break the, the, the uh, uh, sterile field down and then do a second prep and drape for the for the insertion yeah of the three infections were they were they ipg site infections or were they cranial site infections it wasn't clear in the paper to me and sorry two, two were ipg infections and one was a cranial site infection okay um, but interestingly with the guide tubes just one thing to note is um the um with the ipg infection um the the electrodes were removed and the IPG and the connector, but the guide tubes were left in situ. Um, and one of these patients was, was subsequently re-implanted when I worked there kind of later. Um, and you could use the same guide tubes um, so you should, they could get re-implanted without a stereotactic procedure. So the guide tubes were still there. And um, so it was just the length of the electrode that you had to uh, reinsert with the centimeter tip. Um, because they had a good response initially. Um, so um, it's kind of, the, that's one of the, I guess, advantages of a guide tube. The, uh, the cranial infection, it all had to come out, but with the IPG infection that worked in this one case. Yeah. So I did have one question on the image verification workflow. So there's a registration O-arm spin for uh, the, uh, the robot to, be registered to the patient prior to guide tube placement. And then there's a uh, second spin after the guide tube placement yes. to confirm the trajectory. And then once the electrode is placed to depth, is there a, then a third O-arm spin? No, to confirm, or not, not routinely, no. Oh. So, that's, so that's purely done off of the measured depth uh, on the plan of the electrode. Yes, yeah. And I think again, that's from just workflow kind of streamlining. Because um, this was this is not the first 152 cases of this. It was the I think the the this method was introduced about 2010. So there was about a year and a half. Um, so I'm sure there was many more arm spins then. Um, but it was found that that once the stylet um, and the one of the um, uh, um, once the stylet was in place. Um, that the electrode um, followed it as per the, the, the second spin. Another interesting part of this paper was the parietal approach, which I know is a, is a less frequently used approach for placement of the DBS leads. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, that choice and how you made the choice of which patients would get this approach and kind of the timing of that decision and how that played into your workflow? So this was um, an approach uh, done before I worked there. So it was actually a kind of, it was a change in the whole practice in terms of all patients at a particular time. I think it was 2015 uh, had the uh, surgery prone in the in the robot and the um because the center used uh caudal zone inserta for um for et they were looking for basically a longer 
possible to see if you could get better results with going along the axial long axis of, this, of the STM. And if there was, um, for kind of tremor predominant PD, if there was a better response rate for tremor predominant PD with part of the uh, electrode in the caudal zone inserta and the STM. Um, but it, it became apparent that there wasn't any real um, clinical improvement or difference using this approach. So it wasn't, it, um, the, the idea was to check if, to see if uh, a, a different um, VTA would improve the, the clinical outcome. Um, and it, so it wasn't case by case and it wasn't to do with ventricular size per se or um, those reasons. It was done in a, in a group. All of those patients were done at, at one kind of time. So to follow up on that, uh, so that was done for a while. It didn't look like there was a difference. So yeah. uh, the team went back to uh, a more traditional transformal approach. Yeah. It looked, like, it looked like the motoric income, you know, outcomes were pretty equivalent between the two groups. Um, so, um, and maybe if you weren't there when they were doing it, you might not be able to comment, but um, do you know why they went back to going just with a more traditional frontal approach? I think just from an anesthetic point of view, it was easier. Um, and when there was no particular outcome difference, um, they went back to original. Oh, we can't give in to the anesthesiologist like that. <laughs> well, I was, really, I was really excited to see the, the parietal approach because that's something that I had um, written up when I did my fellowship at Queen Square and, and with uh, Zrinzo and Harris. And so we had a case report yeah. where a patient had been reimplanted with, um, and ha had a skin graft in the frontal area and therefore it could not be uh, approached from a frontal for reimplantation. And that patient did well in terms of outcome. And I've had the occasion to do one additional pa patient from the parietal approach here. And um, from a both neurocognitive point of view and motor point of view had equivalent results in that case as well. But uh, I think it's, it, it's valuable for us to sort of consider those VTAs and, and actually that'd be a really interesting data to study and more when we start looking at where the where the tractography overlaps with some of that as well, maybe yeah. more beneficial down the line. Erica, were those STN cases? Yes, those were both STN cases that we did. Yeah, so I, it was interesting, you, uh, you know, the, the motor outcomes, you did an ANOVA analysis and the motor outcomes and they were virtually identical. Um, it, it, it wasn't clear if, if, uh, if, they looked, if they did an ANOVA analysis of the neuropsychological outcomes. Do you know if they've looked at that, at that we data? We didn't, but we, uh, we've done T-tests with the, the maddest dementia rating scale of frontal and parietal and there was no significant difference there. Um, so in terms of cognitive um, issues following caudate and um, traversing, um, it didn't seem like, uh, we didn't see any difference. Um, but also the uh, approach for the, the frontal approach is quite, quite anterior. And um, so it's kind of just behind, the entry point is just behind the hairline. So it's a little bit more forward also than a little bit more anterior than traditional. So 
um, also to get a little bit more along the long axis of the SGN. I really enjoyed uh, Dr. Peterson again, hearing the, uh, the sort of historical evolution of how an experienced surgeon team decides to try something for a while and then goes on to something else. Uh, and then we get to see that evolution in this case series. Um, that's how we make our surgical art of um, medicine decisions at work. I imagine there's a similar story to the adoption of the directional segmented leads. And I was really interested in that looking at the clinical outcomes, first of all, they appeared that only about 16% of patients were using a segmented uh, configuration. The large, largest component of patients were using uh, pure monopolar stimulation, which to me reflects excellent accuracy, uh, which you've already commented on from the other paper. But um, was that again a chronological thing that uh, that patients were strictly for contact, and then as the segmented lead came on, then the, the end of the series was all segmented patients? Or? Yes, it wasn't a case by case decision. It was um, yeah when Boston uh, released it, they were um, they were trialed, and then they just continued uh, using them. Um, but yeah, it's 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 all you know. It's something you wonder, you know, um, they're, why they're not, we didn't use that many in term in the directionality. Um, but I think there isn't that many, the, the numbers are, are small on this. Um, so we, there's plenty more since then to look, yeah. Um, I had another, uh, just again, sort of very practical nuts and bolts uh, question. So uh, all of your electrodes in this series, uh, they were all placed with a single pass, which I think speaks to the, the um, you know, not just accuracy, but precision of the robot. Um, if you, so the workflow is the robot actually makes the drill, you know, drills the bore hole, uh, or it, it defines the angle uh, and the yeah. placement of the bore hole. You place yeah. the guide tube. Just curious if, let's say that you, uh, a less experienced center that was adopting this technique, uh, wasn't happy with um, with the uh, with the, with the initial guide tube placement and wanted to revise the trajectory. Um, would it be difficult for the, for the robot to do that? In other words, if you've got an existing burr hole, you're trying to make a very, very small change. You know, and in a traditional weight case, we used to make big burr holes, right? So if you don't like it, you've got a big playing field to take a guide tube out, make an adjustment, you're still working through the same burr hole. So um, is the robot sort of steady enough to make a second hole if there's already a hole there that's slightly eccentric? Not or really. Angle? No. If, the, if you're not happy with the placement, you, you essentially have to replan and start, and start again. Um, because the, the guide tube um, push fits directly into the, um, the vertical configuration with the kind of graduated drills so it's it's you can't adjust it you have to do a new a new one and it has to be away from it and you and you have to replan you can't just you have to replan it entirely got it okay. you can do it in the same case and sure. um, but but yeah you need to you need to start again and um, but it, it tended to be um 
it tended to be a, a systematic error as opposed where either the frame moved or um, the registration was off. Um, so small, you, you, you didn't see any small deviations. Um, there was none in this series and um, we didn't, when I worked there, we didn't replace any, but if you, if you had to, you would have to start again. Um, the other thing to mention is there was also some, um, in terms of the anatomical targeting, so you talked a little bit about the history and I, I uh, spoke to Professor Gill recently about the history of this and how he used to do anatomical targeting without any software. Um, so it used to be done with blown up T2 MRI physical images in the three planes and drawn. Um, and that is, I think it was, you know, the, the 3D volume aspect of targeting um, kind of grew into the software that we were then using. Um, and what you can now, what you're now seeing with the Boston Guide XT software, where you can see your VTA was kind of what we were always looking at. And again, the idea or the hope is that you get a, you find that sweet spot. So we tended to target a little bit more anterior in the dorsolateral nucleus for rigid akinetic um, patients and then more uh, posterior um, still in the dorsolateral STN, but maybe with a slight contact in the ZI for a tremor predominant um, PD patient. And um, so again, they're, they're gonna, they're working on those exact, what exact contacts, contacts and we started looking at the akinetic rigid versus tremor predominant PD patients and which sub-localization within the STN was best. So I think the hope is that anatomical targeting can help in that regard in the future. Uh, did you, did you uh, ever have, um, well, I'll, I'll ask the question this way. I've had some patients ask if we use robots and I, I tell them that they're stuck with, with humans for the time being. And sometimes they seem uh, comforted by that. And sometimes they seem disappointed by that. Did, did you ever have patients um, uh, voice any concern about a quote robotic procedure? Was that ever a point of discussion with patients during the pre-op, you know, uh, uh, um, talking to the patient about how the procedure would be done? It was, it was part of the consent and um, that it is, it's not a, you know, if that arm decides that it's just not going to move and um, for whatever reason, and um, you know, it's not a frame that you can um, guide in yourself. Um, that we would, you know, we would put it in the consent that if the robot fails, we have to wake you up and do this again um, on another day. So it was definitely part of the consent. Nobody, um, again, because it was developed and um, there was the um, patients were happy, um, but it was definitely something that we, we told them, yeah, that it was the, that if, you know, it's, it's not a frame that's guided by me. Um, the actual moving of the arm, it never happened, thankfully, um, but it is a machine. <laughs> yeah. What is your rate of having to abort with this robot and having to, to try again, come back later? I don't know. I don't have a figure for kind of 
the tenure that they've used it. Um, but it definitely has happened. It didn't happen in this case series, but it has happened once or twice in the uh, in their tenures where they just had to stop because something happened with the mechanics. Um, so I get it. So it definitely has to be part of the, the consent. Yeah. Well, if there aren't any further questions or uh, points of discussion today, I think it's time to wrap up now. Um, any final thoughts, Dr. Moran? Um, no, well, thank you for having me, but it's, it's, I'm setting up a service in Dublin. So I am trying to think of, you know, it's, it's a very relevant topic to myself right now. And um, in terms of, you know, do you want to do an asleep technique with, with a frame? And um, we have a robot. Do you want to do it with a robot? Do you want to start with a frame asleep using targeting? And um, so there's, it's, it's definitely relevant <laughs> um, and, and interesting. And um, looking at the outcomes from this, you know, it, it is something that I would like to pursue. Um, but again, it's working with a different system and it's working with, you know, slightly different software and it's, it's gonna be um, another learning curve for sure. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for a riveting discussion today from all of our participants. Um, Thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to look out for next month's CNS Journal Club, Club podcast. Uh, you all have a, a good day and a good evening, and we'll see you next month to our listeners. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks, Tiffany. Thank you, everyone.